the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the cause. Hey, we're glad to have you with us. We have endured a power outage and had to restart the program, but we are back and ready to go. Today we're going to talk with Norbert Michel. He's the director of the Center for Data Analysis. He also studies and writes about financial markets and monetary policy, including uh, the reform of Fannie and Freddie. We're going to talk about the spread of COVID-19 and what we know about how the numbers increase, decrease, and where they originate. Uh, we'll get into that with him at the top of the next hour, and we'll talk with Ron Price, author of Play Nice in Your Sandbox at Home, How to Enjoy Peaceful Relationships with the Important People in Your Life. And the fact that we're all sheltering in place has put some significant stress on some relationships and households across the um, across the states of Oregon and Washington. We'll talk a little bit about how to mitigate some of the challenges that we are facing. But first, we'll take a look at some of the breaking news of the day. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt said he's seeking to have felony charges against armed St. Louis um, homeowners dismissed, calling a political prosecution brought by the city's top prosecutor. Well, the uh, Missouri AG said these charges... Um, against these armed Missouri homeowners who wielded weapons is a political prosecution and that the fact that these individuals who were demonstrating, protesting, whatever word you choose, uh, were trespassing. Well, Schmidt said the right to self-defense is deeply rooted in the Constitution, said the state has an expansive castle doctrine, which gives broad authority to individuals to protect their lives, the lives of their family members, their homes, and their property, end quote. At a time when there's calls to defund the police, at a time with skyrocketing violent crime rates, including here in Missouri and in St. Louis, he said. We've got a prosecutor now targeting individuals for exercising their fundamental right under the Second Amendment, end quote. Well, Missouri Governor Parson says that he will pardon the McCloskers without a doubt, saying the prosecutor's actions defy common sense. Meanwhile, Kanye West, rather, who has been toying with an independent presidential campaign, took to Twitter on Monday night in a disjoint rant that seemed to support earlier reports. His Sunday campaign rally caused a strain between him and his wife, Kim Kardashian. His tweets, which appeared aimed at his mother-in-law, Kris Jenner, and their uh, marriage, or his marriage to Kim, eerily described his feelings that he could end up getting locked up like Mandela. An apparent reference to Nelson Mandela. I'm having a hard time following the thread, too. While the tweets appeared one day after he held his first campaign rally in North Charleston, South Carolina, where he criticized Harriet Tubman, became emotional when he spoke about his mother and abortion. Uh, Other related news, West submitted signatures to appear on the presidential election ballot in Illinois, and a professor predicts that Kanye West could tap into the protest vote if he follows through with White House bid. Mr. West uh, tweeted a picture of his face on Mount Rushmore amid the 2020 presidential bid as well. Apparently, he thinks he's a shoe in 
The ACLU and lawyers for President Trump's former personal attorney Michael Cohen teamed up on Monday announcing a lawsuit against U.S. Attorney General William Barr and others for allegedly violating his First Amendment rights when he was remanded earlier this month. He's being held in retaliation for his protected speech, including drafting a book manuscript that is critical of the president and recently making public his intention to publish that book soon, shortly before the upcoming election, the petition said. Now, I can't imagine a book that would be any more scathing than the several that were released just in the last few weeks. Cohen was ordered into custody earlier this month after reports said he failed to agree to the terms of federal location monitoring in Manhattan. The New York Post obtained photos of Cohen at a New York City restaurant. A source told the paper the dinner caught the eye of those at the Bureau of Prisons who feel he was released on furlough early, or rather only, to uh, due to coronavirus, but is acting like he's a free man and not under supervision. Cohen's lawyer refuted the claim and said Cohen took issue with the condition of his home confinement that forbade him from speaking with the media and publishing a tell-all book he began working on in federal prison. The rules also prohibited him from posting on social media, according to records. Meanwhile, Portland community leaders plead for a moratorium on street violence as police are targeted, and a Michigan judge won't free a girl who, sent, um, who was sent to juvenile detention for not doing her schoolwork. Mom and dad, you can add that to your arsenal, threatening your kids when they don't want to do theirs. Meadows and Mnuchin, they headed to Capitol Hill today to huddle with lawmakers on the next coronavirus bill. We'll talk a bit about that later in today's program. Well, the European Union nations clenched a $2 trillion, I should say $2.1 trillion budget. Uh, a virus aid deal after about four days. And IBM shares, they've risen as coronavirus is sending businesses to the cloud. And a third of New York City's small businesses may never reopen, according to a report. Well, Mark and Patricia McCloskey have been charged with unlawful use of a weapon. The unlawful use of a weapon charge is a Class D felony, could result in one of to four years in prison, as well as fines of up to $5,000. Sources say uh, the governor's office will be issuing, or rather the uh, attorney general's office will be issuing a summons for the couple to appear in court. Tucker Carlson says the New York Times planned to give out his home address, which the Times has apparently backed down from. Guy Benson reminds us that the New York Times claimed that Tom Cotton's words in the, um, in the policy op-ed makes our journalists physically unsafe, which would be inconsistent with releasing the home address and information, family information about one of their own. Katie Pavlich says, and then he declares uh, he uh, dares to defend his home and family. He will be gaslighted and turned into a villain once again, disgraceful, despicable, referring to the New York Times evil. Eric Metaxas of the uh, New York Times alleged intention says, I understand the New York Times has gone well to heck, uh, which is why I canceled my subscription but that they would use their news organization, news in quotes, to publicize the location of a Tucker Carlson's family residence is what polite people would call evil and despicable. Well, the study finds that Sweden saw no downside in their decision to keep schools open. From the Wall Street Journal editorial board, they write that California Governor Gavin Newsom on Friday forbade schools, both public and private, from reopening until the state, i.e. the teachers union, declares it to be safe. Chalk it up as another sad example of politicians putting the interests of unions over kids. Again, from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Tom Cotton on Twitter points out that Gavin Newsom encouraged mass protests. Now he's forcing private schools to stay closed even if they could open safely. Closing Catholic and other religious schools while encouraging mass protests isn't science. It's a violation of the First Amendment. 
and clanging pots and pans so the speakers could not be heard in Denver. Black Lives Matter group harassed a pro-police rally. Meanwhile, the Oregonian, which is one of many news outlets that prefer to call rioters protesters, and by the way, among those who are rioting are sincere, genuine, well-intentioned protesters, but their message is being lost Uh, among the den. Anyway, they're claiming the news of riots in Portland is a conspiracy, the reporting of it. At the same time, the Portland Police Association is frustrated. The city is allowing the violence and riots to continue. A New York woman is following a police borough's advice, but she got shot and killed doing so. They had suggested residents try talking to those who are shooting off illegal fireworks instead of calling the police. Well, she was killed for trying to do just that. Premature births apparently have dropped off the map during the pandemic. It takes a while before the story gets to uh, the possible explanation, uh, which is where things get interesting. One could be um, rest uh, by staying home. Some pregnant women may have experienced less stress from work and commuting. Uh, They're getting more sleep. They receive more support from their families. They're less exposed to the flu and other things that are out there prior to COVID-19. Women staying at home also could have avoided infections in general, not just the new coronavirus. Some viruses, such as influenza, can raise the odds of a premature birth. And Snopes is changing the definition of terrorist to save the Black Lives Matter movement from some embarrassment. They were um, fact-checking this. Susan Rosenberg is a convicted terrorist who has sat on the board of the directors of Thousand Currents, an organization that handles fundraising for the Black Lives Matter Global Network. We talked about that yesterday. Conclusion, they use the word mixture because while it's 100% true, there's no single universally agreed definition of terrorism. It's like art. You know it when you see it, but we can't really define good art, they are arguing. Well, nobody else seems to question that she is a convicted terrorist. She was commuted by Bill Clinton, also uh, well known for changing the definition of a word that was heretofore understood by all. We won't get into that, however. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to wind our way through some of the top news stories of the day. And also later in the program, we'll talk with Norbert Michelle. We'll talk about the spread of COVID-19 in the United States. It's been um, heavily concentrated in a small number of states. We'll explain why and what that means uh, in the second hour of today's program. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, looking at some of the day's news. Also want to remind you that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Norbert Michelle, Director of the Center for Data Analysis. We'll be talking about the spread of COVID-19 in the United States. It's been heavily concentrated in a small number of states and a small number of counties. We'll not only look at those numbers, but we'll look at uh, the meaning behind them. He'll be joining us at the top of the next hour. We'll also talk with Ron Price. He's the author of Play Nice in Your Sand. Sandbox at home, how to enjoy peaceful relationships with the important people in your life, especially relevant during this uh, pandemic where we are sheltering in place like, well, never before, at least in this generation. Well, again, returning to the news, violence escalated overnight between federal officers and protesters in downtown Portland. The mayor blames it on the Trump administration and the feds, and there's a lawsuit that's been filed. We'll tell you more about that. Uh, Later this uh, segment, GOP coronavirus, uh, they have a bill. It's likely to include payroll tax cut and a tie school money to reopening plans. The New York Times has joined the AP in capitalizing black 
adding it to the euphemism treadmill. Apparently, white is still lowercase. I'm not sure I understand that, if it's supposed to be flattering or whatever, but this is what the New York Times and AP have decided to do. Joe Biden, I guess that passes for real reform. Joe Biden unveiled $775 billion plan to fund universal child care and in-home elder care in a lengthy speech earlier in the day. He took no questions. And uh, Republican in name only, as John Kasich is referred to, will speak in support of Joe Biden at the Democratic Convention, according to the New York Post. And George Will, also referred to by Republicans as a rhino, says that he's going to vote for Joe Biden in November as well. No surprises there, but these um, Republicans coming out not only in favor of Joe Biden, but strongly in opposition to President Trump. Chinese communist government is using the Uyghur forced labor to produce masks and images from that uh, slave labor now being uh, seen across the globe. The Trump administration has added 11 companies to sanctions their list over the Uyghur oppression. The United Kingdom has suspended its extradition treaty with Hong Kong in response as well. And President Trump is going to send more federal law enforcement to cities like Chicago and New York, where they've already been present, but apparently in larger numbers, not entirely sure. Well, the president is pushing mask wearing and say, says rather he'll resume the White House briefings amid the spike in cases, according to USA Today. And a wave of promising study results are raising hopes for vaccines by the end of this year or the start of the next. The vast majority of patients have antibodies for at least three months, though the study is yet to be peer-reviewed. Fear of infection keeps patients away from emergency rooms, augmenting hospital bankruptcies. And the uh, Britishless European Union adopts an $857 billion stimulus to fight recession. A political prosecution, with the help of George Soros, St. Louis couple Mark and Patricia McCloskey, have been charged for waving signs at waving guns rather at vandals. Not clear what the law is there. The courts will sort it out apparently. And a Missouri governor is going to pardon the the McCloskeys without a doubt. A Michigan school has fired a popular teacher for factually saying Trump is our president. Wow, you can read more about that in the Washington Free Beacon. Whether or not you want him to be president or support him as president, he is factually the president. Mother of CHOP shooting victim has filed a wrongful death claim against uh, the city of Seattle. And the majority of voters who are bombarded with racial propaganda 24-7 in the media say the U.S. society is racist, according to the Wall Street Journal. On this day in history, 1925, the so-called monkey trial ends in Dayton, Tennessee, with John T. Scopes found guilty of violating state law for teaching Darwin's theory of evolution. That conviction would be later overturned on on a technicality. 1969, Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Goldsmith, Armstrong, Neil Goldsmith, <laughs> Neil Armstrong, uh, and Edwin Buzz Aldrin, they blast off from the moon aboard the ascent stage of the lunar module for docking with the command module. 1980, draft registration begins in the United States for 19 and 20 year old men. 1999, on this day in history, Navy divers find and recover the bodies of John F. Kennedy Jr., his wife Caroline, and sister-in-law Lauren Bissett in the wreckage of Kennedy's plane in the Atlantic Ocean off Martha's Vineyard. 2000, Special Counsel John C. Danforth concludes with 100% certainty that the federal government is innocent of wrongdoing in the siege that killed 80 members of the Branch Davidian compound near Waco, Texas in 1993. On this day in history, 2008, former Bosnian Serb leader Radovan 
Karadovich, one of the world's top war crime fug- uh, fugitives, is arrested in a Belgrade suburb by, Serber- by Serbian security forces. He would be sentenced by the UN court in 2019 to life imprisonment after being convicted of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. 2011, the 30-year-old space shuttle program ends as Atlantis lands in Cape Canaveral, Florida, after the 135th shuttle flight. While two Oregon state lawmakers, the Western States Center, Inc., a Portland church, and a Portland attorney have joined to sue four federal law enforcement agencies that are providing tactical officers to defend the downtown federal courthouse. State Representatives Janelle Bynum uh, from Clackamas, Karen Power from Milwaukee, along with Portland lawyer and legal observer Sarah Eddy, the first Unitarian Church of Portland and Western State Center, which tracks extremist groups and provides support to social movements, filed suit Tuesday in U.S. District Court in Portland against the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Customs, uh, Customs and Border Protection, Federal Protection Services, and U.S. Marshal Service. The point of this, whether and how to police is left to the states and their municipalities. Presidents cannot change that, the suit says. And while the federal government may protect its property and personnel, the federal government is constrained by the Constitution from policing the city of Portland, broadly speaking, and there is no positive delegation of authority in any law that makes the federal government recent forays into general policing in Portland either legal or constitutional, according to the suit. As I mentioned yesterday, the question is jurisdiction. The federal government does have the right to protect personnel and property that belongs to the federal government, whether or not they have exceeded that authority in the absence of uh, the will on the part of the mayor of the city of Portland to do so with the authority and uh, law enforcement that he has will be a major question in that suit. COVID-19 has claimed seven more lives in Oregon, raising the state's death toll to 269, the Oregon Health Authority reported today. Uh, The Oregon Health uh, Authority said new cases are in the following counties, well, virtually all of them, Baker, Benton, Clackamas, Clatsop, Columbia, Coos, Deschutes, Douglas, Harney, Hood, Jackson, Jefferson, Josephine, Klamath, Lake, Lane, Malheur, Marion, Morrow, Multnomah, Polk, Umatilla, Union, Wasco, Washington, and Yamhill. Now, the numbers vary greatly. In Marion County, there were 40 cases. In Multnomah, 67. In Washington, 32. And the remaining counties, most I should say Umatilla at 59. In the remaining cases, the numbers vary from 15, from 1 to 2 to 15 and so on. Well, Oregon's 263rd COVID-19 death was an 88-year-old woman in Clackamas. She tested positive uh, in June, died on the 15th of June in her residence. She underlying conditions. Now, I mentioned that, and there are others Uh, whose deaths occurred earlier this month or much uh, uh, earlier than certainly today, to indicate that that number seven doesn't mean that in the last day or two even, there have been seven new deaths. This really spans a period from mid-June to the present, uh, as late as yesterday. So in the vast majority of these cases, the uh, victims all had underlying conditions, uh, as uh, we know is uh, so often the case, and most of them were in their late 50s to... um, uh, mid to upper 80s. Again, Oregon's 269th COVID-19 death is a 47-year-old man in Umatilla who tested positive June 29th, died on the 17th of July at Providence St. Mary in Walla Walla, Washington, um, which um, he had underlying conditions, uh, which is interesting. He died in Washington, but was an Oregonian, so he is counted among our numbers. But these are the latest from the Oregon Health Authority here. 
We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to look at how deadly COVID-19 is. Researchers are getting closer to an answer to that question. Uh, We'll also take a look at uh, Chinese hackers who've been uh, charged by the Justice Department with trying to steal U.S. coronavirus research and rather brazen in the process. One uh, commentator pointed out that they no longer fear the United States. And Mitch McConnell says the economy needs another shot of adrenaline, and he's backing additional round of stimulus checks. We'll get into that and much, much more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, how deadly is COVID-19? Researchers are getting closer to an answer to that question. They suggest the new virus kills about 5 to 10 people for every 1,000 that it infects. Though these rates vary based on age, access to health care, and so on. Well, six months into the pandemic, researchers are honing in on an answer to one of the basic questions about this particular virus, and that is, how deadly is it? Now, we look at the numbers, uh, the number of cases, the number of fatalities, and so on, but trying to understand this in a more precise way has been the challenge for researchers since this began six months ago. Well, researchers initially analyzed data from the outbreaks on cruise ships, and more recently from surveys of thousands of people in virus hotspots, have now conducted dozens of studies to calculate the infection fatality rate of COVID-19. Well, that research, examining deaths out of the total number of infections, which includes unreported cases, suggests that COVID-19 kills from around 0.3 to 1.5% of people infected. Now, most studies put the rate at between 0.5 and 1 point, uh, 1 percentage point, meaning that for every 1,000 people who get infected, from 5 to 10 would die on average. Well, the estimate suggests the new coronavirus is deadlier than the seasonal flu, though not as lethal as Ebola and other infectious diseases that have emerged in recent years. The coronavirus is killing more people than the deadlier diseases, however, in part because it's um, more infectious. Uh, It's not just what the infection fatality rate is. It's also how contagious the disease is. And COVID is very contagious. That's a quote from Eric Toner, an emergency medicine physician and senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, who studies healthcare preparedness for epidemics and infectious disease. It's the combination of the fatality rate and the infectiousness that makes this such a dangerous disease. Now, health authorities and researchers, they've been working to gauge the death rate from the coronavirus to better understand the risk of the disease, estimate how many people might die, and respond with the necessary public health measures. Now, pinpointing that rate has been, well, challenging to say the least, because a significant chunk of cases have a few to no symptoms or haven't been tested at all. Well, the rate also varies depending on factors such as a person's age and the strength of a jurisdiction's healthcare system. It's very difficult to measure, but robust studies are finding a clear signal in the noise of it all. Timothy Russell, a research fellow at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, points out. Well, a study by Dr. Russell and colleagues published in February that examined data from China and an outbreak on the Diamond Princess cruise ship put the infection fatality rate at 0.6%. More than 14.7 million people have been infected with SARS-CoV-2, which is also COVID-19, across the globe. And over 609,000 people have died, with nearly a quarter of the fatalities in the United States, according to data compiled by Johns Hopkins University. Well, that means that among confirmed global cases, roughly 4.2% of those people died. 
the percentage of deaths among people with confirmed infections is higher than the percentage of deaths among infections overall, according to researchers, because so many milder and asymptomatic COVID-19 cases go missed. Well, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they've estimated that for every known case of COVID-19, roughly 10 more uh, went unrecorded through the beginning of May. The total number of infections ranges from 6 to 24 times more than confirmed cases, depending on the state, according to the agency, in a paper that was published on Tuesday in the Journal of Internal uh, Medicine. Well, the hard bit really is to work out how many people have been infected, uh, who oh, says one researcher who alongside colleagues at the Imperial College of London estimated that the infection fatality rate in China is 0.66% in a paper published back in March. Much has happened since then. It's um, far from business as usual at the Indianapolis um, headquarters where of Eli Lilly and only a sixth of the pharma company's employees working on site to develop potential COVID-19 uh, treatments that continues there and elsewhere as we try to understand this virus, uh, whether or not antibodies will remain for longer than a period of a few short months, uh, whether or not one can become immune and if that immunity holds over long periods of time. And of course, as we chase after the possibility of a vaccine. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice announced on Tuesday it's charged two Chinese hackers with trying to steal U.S. COVID-19 research, as well as other sensitive information from businesses and government agencies. It's an 11-count indictment against uh, a 34- and 31-year-old uh, hacker, uh, hackers, plural, alleging that the Chinese nationals hacked into the computer systems of hundreds of companies, government organizations, as well as individual dissidents and clergy. Uh, they also allegedly broke into the accounts of democratic and human rights activists here in the United States, Hong Kong, and mainland China. The Justice Department alleges their decade-long con was not only for personal financial gain, but also to benefit the Chinese government. The hackers stole terabytes of data from hundreds of uh, targets, which comprise a sophisticated and prolific threat to U.S. networks. The Department of Justice says Li and Dong, the first names of the pair, trained in computer applications technologies at the same Chinese university in Chengdu, uh, targeted countries with high-tech industries, including Australia, Belgium, Germany, Japan, Lithuania, Spain, South Korea, Sweden, and the United Kingdom, according to authorities. The industries included the high-tech manufacturing of medical devices, industrial engineering, business, educational, and gaming software, as well as in energy and pharmaceutical defense. In at least one instance, the hacker sought to extort um, cryptocurrency from a victim entity by threatening to release the victim's stolen source code on the Internet. The FBI recently, the defendants probed for vulnerabilities in computer networks of companies developing COVID-19 vaccines, testing technology and treatments. What a complicated world we live in. Well, another new Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Tuesday made clear he supports another round of stimulus checks to Americans. The economy needs another shot of adrenaline amid the coronavirus pandemic, he says. McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, has been in negotiations with top congressional Democrats and White House and the White House on what the next coronavirus bill would look like as the Trump administration is pushing a package with a price tag of $1 trillion. McConnell said he supports another round of direct payments to Americans, something President Trump and top members of his administration have said they, too, support. The economy needs another shot of adrenaline, McConnell said today. If you lose control of the vines, everything else will be window dressing. 
Uh, source uh, told Fox News this week that an emphasis would be put on liability protections and addressing unemployment insurance in a proper way. The key to Republican support for the package is making sure those who are without work do not make more on unemployment than they would if they were working. The additional unemployment benefit of $600 a week approved in the third coronavirus package will expire, Oct- or I should say, August 1st. Meanwhile, House Democratic Caucus Chairman Hakeem Jeffries, a Democrat from New York, said it was cruel-hearted and callous to cut off the additional unemployment benefits without extending the program and a failure of leadership in the Senate and in the White House. Jeffries noted the House bill passed in May extended those benefits, which he said is appropriate because the pandemic is not over and in many parts of the country is just getting started. As for liability protections, McConnell said he was forced on creating a safe harbor for firms, universities and small businesses if we want any genuine reopening at all. We need to carve out a new normal, McConnell said. We can't go back to April. He reiterated that he believed the new plan being pushed by Republicans would score Democratic support. Uh, Republicans are looking at $100 billion of a $1 trillion to go to state and local governments. $70 billion of that would go toward helping schools reopen in safe manner. Uh, the Senate had led to, at every step of this process, he said. This is Mitch McConnell. We need to rise to the occasion one more time. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, Stephen Mnuchin, uh, said this week that the administration is focused on starting with another trillion dollars. We think that uh, that will make a big impact, he said on Monday, while noting that the focus is kids and jobs and that the goal is to have the package in place by the end of this month. Mnuchin also said lawmakers are aiming to pass the new legislation before the end of July when the current enhanced unemployment insurance expires. We will continue to follow that story as it develops in Washington. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, Chuck Schumer. The Senate Democrats on Thursday have released a $350 billion plan to tackle systematic racism and historic underinvestment in communities of color that have been hardest hit by the coronavirus pandemic and economic downturn. We'll tell you more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, which happens to be the second hour, Norbert Michel, director of the Center for Data Analysis. He studies and writes about financial markets and monetary policy. We're going to talk about COVID-19 and a resource to help you track what's happening around the country. And the spread of COVID-19 across the United States is pretty heavily concentrated in a small number of states, a small number of counties within those states. We'll take a look at it, but more importantly, what that means. I mean, how is that relevant to my understanding COVID-19 and um, how we can mitigate the damage done by it. We're also going to talk with Ron Price. He is the author of Play Nice and Your Sandbox at Home. Are you playing nice? The subtitle is uh, How to Enjoy Peaceful Relationships with the Important People in Your Life. James and I are reading this remotely so that uh, we don't you know, get in fights as we're preparing uh, the show from day to day. Anyway, he'll be joining us uh, later in the five o'clock hour as well. Well, as mentioned, Senate Democrats on Thursday released a $350 billion plan to tackle systematic racism and historic underinvestment in communities of color that have been hardest hit by the coronavirus pandemic and economic downturn. It's called the Economic Justice Act. It calls for 10 major investments over the next five years to help communities 
uh, with childcare, healthcare, jobs programs, infrastructure improvements, and housing assistance. Senate Democrats framed their proposal as a down payment on calls to address systematic racism and economic disparities that have been spotlighted in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic and the death of George Floyd. Now, that's a growing movement underway in uh, for Congress to tackle the disparities through slavery reparations to African-Americans as well. Long before the pandemic, long before this recession, uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer says long before this year's protests, structural inequalities have persisted in health care and housing, the economy and education. He went on to say that COVID-19 has only magnified these injustices and we must um, confront them with lasting, meaningful solutions that tear down economic and social barriers and reinvest in historically underserved communities. The Economic Justice Act is a needed step in a long journey to address systematic racism and historic underinvestment in communities of color. Now, my hope is, I mean, it all sounds, you know, it all sounds good. My hope is this is not uh, simply a, um, a crutch that's being developed that we've seen in times past, that it's meaningful reform that doesn't just dress, address race, but dresses poverty and other issues as well. I haven't had the opportunity to take a look at it yet, but uh, plan to do that. The Economic Justice Act uh, would partially be funded through reprogramming $200 billion in unspent funds from the CARES Act coronavirus response legislation signed into law in March. Now, why the CARES Act um, has $200 billion that uh, has not been used, but I guess this is reprogramming, uh, is something of a mystery. But in the short term, the proposal calls for $50 billion in child care programs, $40 billion for community health care efforts, $25 billion for job training and at-risk youth initiatives, $20 billion for capital and support for small businesses. The longer-term investment would mean $115 billion in infrastructure, such as schools, housing, broadband access, $40 billion in new homeowners down payment assistance, $30 billion in assistance for renters and low-income housing tax credits, $15 billion to encourage non-expansion states to expand Medicaid coverage, and $15 billion for Medicaid to help pregnant moms through one year postpartum. Now, how that's being paid for is always the big question, uh, and uh, that's not part of uh, the legislation at this point um, that we at least have access to. Much work to be done to understand what the uh, proposal is intended to do. It seems like it is a uh, major transfer of wealth, but again, need to read the legislation. President Trump on Tuesday is going to sign an executive order to prevent illegal immigrants from being counted for the purposes of redrawing congressional districts after the 2020 census. Now, the White House uh, said that the Trump administration will sign, or rather Trump will sign an appropriate a, an apportionment memorandum on ensuring American citizens receive proper representation in Congress. That's all in quotes. The official said that it would uh, clarify that those in the country illegally would not be included for the redrawing process known as apportionment of congressional districts after the census. Now, census counts are used to determine the allocation of seats in the House of Representatives, the number of electors in the Electoral College, and hundreds of billions of dollars in federal spending. Excluding illegal aliens for the purpose of apportionment reflects a better understanding of our Constitution and democratic principles, the um, Trump official said. It comes as part of an ongoing push by the administration to make sure that illegal immigrants are not included in the census. The order will likely be subjected to a legal challenge from the immigrant activist groups and others. The Supreme Court last year blocked a citizenship question from being included in the census and sent the question back to the lower courts after concluding the administration's reasoning for including such a question was insufficient. 
It had been opposed from Democrats and immigrant groups on the basis that it could discourage immigrants from responding to the census. The president later signed an executive order to get an accurate count of citizens and non-citizens present in the country. Attorney General Bill Barr said that at the time of the information collection via the executive order could be useful in determining the makeup of the Electoral College and congressional apportionment. That information will be used for countless purposes. For example, there's a current dispute over whether illegal aliens can be included for um, apportionment purposes. We will be studying this issue, uh, Mr. Barr said. Have you heard about pandemic pods? Well, apparently it's the wave of the future. They're fundamentally reshaping K-12 education. Well, the practice of organizing pandemic pods in which parents team up with other families in their neighborhoods or social circles to hire teacher for teachers rather for their children is getting more and more popular by the minute. Uh, with many school districts around the country planning not to reopen classrooms this fall in California, for example, you are forbidden from doing so, whether or not you can do so safely and socially distance. Um, they are planning uh, to offer some combination of virtual and in-class instruction in other places. Families are clamoring to secure education consistency for their children as the school year approaches. So what exactly do these pods look like? I hadn't heard the phrase. Families work together to recruit teachers that they pay out of pocket to teach small groups or pods of children. It's a way for clusters of students to receive professional instruction for several hours a day. Now, some parents are using their pod arrangements to hire teachers who will supplement the online classes being provided by their school districts. Laura Meckler and Hannah Natanson of the Washington Post observed that pandemic pods are a 2020 version of the one-room schoolhouse privately funded. In the case of one Northern Virginia family, uh, the Meckler and Nathanson um, family, the parents pay around $500 a month to get in on an arrangement with other families in their neighborhood to share a teacher that they've hired for their pod to teach their children. One mother named Jay Lee wrote in a viral Facebook post last week that thousands of parents are scrambling to form pods through an absolute explosion of Facebook groups, matchups, and spreadsheets. Uh, she describes the pod phenomenon as clusters of three to six families with similar aged and sometimes same school children co-quarantined with each other who hire one tutor for in-person support for their students. The tutor can serve as a full-time teacher for the pod of students or may only teach on a part-time basis or outdoor classes. Suddenly, teachers who are able to co-quarantine with a pod are in uh, incredible demand. So this is one way that families are dealing with, one way that families with means are dealing with the absence of in-class um, classrooms where teachers are present. Now, I know in some cases, as I mentioned, there's something of a hybrid where you have the option of attending school part-time, uh, where the students would be staggered Tuesday, Thursday, for example, Monday, Wednesday, you'd have different sets of students uh, that would meet with their teachers in the classroom. So there's all kind of um, there are all kinds of creative ideas for how to educate students moving forward. But of course, this pandemic pod, as I've described it, would require the means to financially contribute to a teacher serving as the classroom teacher in that scenario. Hey, we've got uh, news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we return, we're going to take a look at um, COVID-19 and how it's spreading across the country with Norbert Michel. We'll also talk with Ron Price, author of Play Nice in Your Sandbox at Home. So stay with us. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Well, all of us have been watching with great interest developments related to COVID-19, but interpreting that information can be something of a challenge. Well, the Heritage Foundation researchers have demonstrated throughout this pandemic that the spread of COVID-19 in the United States has been heavily concentrated in a small number of states and among a small number of counties within those states. So writes my next guest, Norm. Robert Michelle for the Daily Signal. He points out that even though the U.S. has seen a rapid rise in cases during the last few weeks, the overall levels of concentration have remained fairly consistent. And as of um, mid-July, the 14th to be more precise, uh, as one example, just 10 states account for 61% of all cases and 66% of all deaths. Well, joining us to talk about it is Norbert Michel. He's the director of the Center for Data Analysis, where he also studies and writes about financial markets, monetary policy, including the reform of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. I think the challenge for many of us is interpreting information that that is presented yeah. to us. Let me first of all ask you to tell uh, tell us what you meant in suggesting that uh, there are very few states that have the majority of cases uh, and very few states, relatively, that have the majority of deaths. Well, one of the big implications is that there's no need to have, say, just for example, a nationwide policy of lockdowns or of anything else in particular. Um, this is obviously COVID is a problem. Uh, it's and it's all over. Um, but there, there's sort of like a misconception that every place across the U.S. is just rife with this stuff, and that's not true. And that's important, not only because it indicates that we don't need a one-size-fits-all policy, but also because it indicates that we need specific policies that deal with specific situations mm -hmm. in specific places. Um, they're just, we're just not all the same, and it's just not going through the U.S. in the same way uh, all across the country. It just isn't. So what, what works in one place is highly like, unlikely to work in some other place. Exactly. What can we learn about these areas that have the majority or the bulk of the cases? Is it a dense population? Is it? Uh, are there elements that we can learn from these numbers and these particular areas that tell us something about how COVID-19 spreads or uh, any other information that will be useful in addressing it? Sure. I, there, there are some things. For, no, no, there's no doubt. Um, and, and one of the things to keep in mind, I think, is that it, it most of the places in the U.S., most areas in the U.S. are not as dense, uh, densely populated as, say, New York and New Jersey and that entire surrounding area. Um, and their their work and home relationship and their commute is not the same. Uh, you know, people in Connecticut regularly went into New York. You know, that, that doesn't th – those sorts of longer commutes don't happen all over the country. Um, and, and that's a good thing um, because it – just that fact alone is is probably going to indicate that throughout the whole thing, as has happened so far, the spread is not going to look like it did in the Northeast area. And uh, and, and in addition to that, um, there are some different policies that took place in the New York and New Jersey, in New York and New Jersey, and even in Massachusetts relative to nursing homes uh, that are are that are that account for a very large portion of the deaths almost half and roughly half in this area in all areas now um so we 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 
learned a hard lesson, but we learned a lesson, uh, I think, of what not to do mm-hmm. uh, with nursing home patients. Florida, for example, did not follow the New York method. Uh, they had different structures on nursing home protocols, and it worked out much better. Um, the The death rate is much better in, in Florida than in New York and in nursing homes and in total. Are leaders and decision makers uh, politicizing issues around how to address COVID-19 or are you see- <laughs> yeah, kind of funny or are you seeing a seriousness about recognizing the nuance of how this is impacting particular areas in very specific ways? Well, I, I mean, I can't speak to everybody, but I mean, I think it's, it's pretty clear that Cuomo in New York has politicized the daylights out of this. I mean, um, their, their handling of the, of the disease was a complete disaster. And I mean, I, I, I don't care about the politics, but I mean, that's just the bare facts. They, they bungled this completely. They were, they were literally sending nursing home patients back to the nursing home after they went to the hospital. Uh, I mean, I, that, that's, that's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what they were doing. I mean, and, and now he's on TV saying, you know, that they did a great job. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, that, you know, that, that's been, it's been highly politicized. Uh, it, it, and for whatever reason, um, other people have been attacking people like, uh, Ron DeSantis, who is not a Democrat. Uh, even though the Florida, the total Florida numbers, the cases are going up as are the deaths because so many cases are going up. But in general, on a population basis, their um, their their numbers still look much better than places like New York. And everybody always says, well, you know, the deaths come with a lag. You have to wait two more weeks or something like that. But people have been saying that for months. And it's true. You do have to wait. Um, but their numbers have not increased to the to approach anything like in New York, and it looks like their policies are still much better. Um, a lot of the stuff is international too. You see the same thing with Sweden. Um, you know, Sweden's numbers are worse in some countries, but they're better than other countries. And a lot of international leaders and pundits have used Sweden as an example uh, that you have to have lockdown. But the truth is. They did better than other countries like Belgium and France that did have lockdowns. So even though their numbers look worse than some, they do look better than others. And they still have a good case to be made that all this complete and massive shutting down of the entire economy uh, might not be the way to go. But nobody wants to have that. It seems like very few people, I should say, it seems like very few people want to have a rational discussion about that. Yeah, sadly, that is the case. And it is, of course, an election year. My understanding is the Heritage Foundation has developed two interactive COVID-19 trackers. Tell us about them and how they can help us determine what should apply in particular areas based on what's actually happening in those areas. Oh, sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for mentioning these. And, and, and I'll also mention we'll have some new ones coming out. <laughs> uh, but, but what these do is they look at the trend over the last 14 days, the increase or the decrease in one is deaths, one is cases uh, on a county level. So you can go in to an interactive map. You can select any county in the U.S., and it will show you the 14-day average daily change in either cases or deaths for that particular county. It will graph it. 
and it will let you know what the totals are through the date that we've updated it, and we constantly update it. It'll give you population figures, it'll give you population density, and it'll tell you where they rank in the U.S. So it's not saying, you know, do anything or don't do anything. It's literally just letting people track where the disease is more prevalent and less prevalent and where things may or may not be out of control or, you know, looking better. For the average citizen, we're not decision makers, we're not policy makers with regard to how to respond mm-hmm. to all of this. Um, how can we use this information in a way that makes us at least feel a bit more secure uh, about how things are being managed by those who are policy makers? Well, it's it's a way of just skipping all the rhetoric. I mean, you know, if uh, you, you've been hearing that Florida is on fire for the last three months, you can go and look for yourself uh, at what the data says, Florida. Um, and, you know, that it turns out that all of Florida is not on fire. Although, although of course, in the last few weeks, they have had a surge, big surge in cases. Uh, same thing with Texas. But you can go on and you can look and you can see there are many, many counties, many counties in both states um, that, that are not uh, imploding. And, you know, it's just just factual, just data and facts. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes the language that's being used to report on this is somewhat mm-hmm. misleading. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, the way the mm-hmm. words that are chosen, the numbers that are highlighted, as opposed to just mm-hmm. hard factual um, assessments can be a bit of a challenge. So this yeah. is a great resource. Where can our listeners find this resource? Oh, it's, it's on our webpage, which is heritage.org. And we have, it's sort of a, a collection page. And if you type in Heritage COVID-19 Resources and Interactive Toolkit, you should get to our collection page. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Norbert, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for talking with us today. appreciate it. No problem. Anytime. Again, Norbert Michel is a a director of the Center for Data Analysis. He also studies and writes about financial markets and monetary policy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Ron Price. He's the author of Play Nice in Your Sandbox at Home, How to Enjoy Peaceful Relationships with the Important People in Your Life. We're all living in close quarters these days. This might be helpful, so stay tuned. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, it's been, what, five, six months that we've all been on lockdown. And my next guest makes the point, rightly so, that marriages are under some strain. Far too many couples from the very beginning have a false image of marriage. Either we think we're going to have to grin and bear it and just kind of put up with the hard times, or it's going to be that um, nonstop bliss uh, that you see on television. Well, it's uh, neither of those things. At some, uh, some couples find themselves locked in tight quarters with their spouse and kids for weeks, as we have been. Some are starting to lose it, fight and bicker, or even resort to domestic violence. Well, one thing for certain, one's character is inevitably revealed in times of stress and crisis. I think we're all seeing that today. Well, the author of Play Nice in Your Sandbox at Home, How to Enjoy Peaceful Relationships with the Most Important People in Your Life, my guest has seen it all. He provides clearly defined guidelines for how to resolve conflict in marriage. And he talks about the value of playing together, investing in one another, in dealing with anger, showing appreciation, and seeing marriage 
as a team sport. Well, Ron Price uh, owns and operates Productive Outcomes, Inc., where he provides uh, mediation and life marriage coaching, along with uh, workplace training and public speaking services. Uh, His book is one that I would recommend for all of us who are sheltering in place and want to do so in a way that when we look back, we can uh, be grateful for the time that we grew closer together rather than farther apart um, through the strain. Ron Price, thank you so much for joining us. Georgina, it's my pleasure. And that was such a nice introduction. I don't want to add anything. I don't want to, I don't want to risk taking away from what you just said. No, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, you for those gracious words. Oh, you're so very welcome. You know, this is a stressful season. Uh, my husband and I are sheltering here in our home. I'm working from home. We take care of my 89-year-old mother from home. Everything seems to be centered here. And it's an environment that on the one hand, we're thoroughly enjoying. On the other hand, it does place some strain. Can you describe for us what some of the challenges are that we face when our circumstances change so dramatically and you add to that a bit of uncertainty? Well, uncertainty and extra time together, Jordine. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, l- let me tell you really quickly, though, why marriages are a challenge. Why why so often we have difficulty in marriage. May I tell your, your listeners that? It, it's because you married a human being. That was the first mistake you made. You married an imperfect <laughs> human being. I don't know what you were thinking. But uh, no, seriously, though, if, if you take two imperfect people and then you add other little imperfect people to the mix and expect that there's never going to be a, an unpleasant word or an uncomfortable situation, that's just not realistic just not realistic. So in the best of families, there will be moments of, of discord, disharmony, whatever you want to call it. So now, like you just said, you add the extra stress, the uncertainty, and we're together even more. Oh, yeah, that's, that's absolutely a, a ripe environment for some ugliness, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you use the analogy of a sandbox, and it seems so entirely appropriate. How did that image um, come to your head in explaining, you know, the fact that we're all living together in a common environment where maybe the ground underneath us doesn't feel quite as firm as we, we'd hope? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I people ask me, where did you grow up? I say, I'm trying to do it in Farmington, New Mexico. I don't, <laughs> I don't ever want to grow up, Georgine. I want to be an adult. I want to be responsible for myself. But, but anything that brings us back to the carefree days of childhood, at least the, the relatively carefree days where we had to learn how to get along. We had to, we had to play well together. We had to share our toys, different things like that. It just, it just seemed like a nice analogy to me. And then God gave me the play nice acronym. The play is a four-step model to prevent trivial matters from blowing up on you and, and getting out of hand. The nice is a four-step model to resolve significant differences that you're bound to have yeah. from time to time. So play nice in your sandbox. There you go. I love the title. I think it's fairly um, common for the common courtesies that we extend to strangers to get lost in our marriages. It's, mm. it's as if we take a deep breath when we walk through the door. I don't have to be kind. I don't have to be generous. I don't have to be. I'm tired. I just want to be left alone and be thoroughly myself, which isn't always that pleasant. Um, why is it that in these uh, environments that we're uh, with the people that we love the dearest, that, that we're closest to, that we tend to, I don't know, let uh, let down a little bit? Yeah, there's a couple of things there, 
Georgine. Number one, it's a fact of life. Hurting people are going to hurt people. Hmm. If I'm upset, if I'm angry about something, if I'm frustrated, I'm going to take that out on somebody else. I just am. And I'm probably not going to get in my car, drive across town looking for somebody to take it out on. I'm going to take it on who, whoever's in striking distance, which most of the time is going to be family members. And so that's why that old song that our parents' generation sang, you always hurt the ones you love. Yeah. Or maybe our grandparents' generation. But, but it's true because they're there when you're not at your best, if you're not careful, yeah, you can say something you'll later wish you hadn't said. God forbid you can do something you'll later on wish you hadn't done. These are tense times. But, but Georgine, that's, that's almost an excuse, if you will. That there's always tense times. There's always difficulties. I think Charles Dickens said it so well. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's, that's true for every one of us all the time. Yeah. That's uh, Georgine, such a good I bet point. right now... I. It is. I bet right now in your life, something is going real well. You wouldn't change a thing. Other thing, other areas could probably stand some improvement. Am I right on that? Have you been reading my diary? Hey, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> yes. That's a yes. <laughs> but it is. It's true for all of us. So we do. We have to, we have to be careful when we're at a store, when we're out in public. I think we have that extra measure of, oh, you know, people might be watching and, and we kind of care about our reputation or whatever. So we're on guard and, and we say please and thank you. But then we get home and we think, well, maybe that's not so important. We, we take each other for granted, which is a huge mistake. Huge yeah. mistake. Yeah. So how do we avoid that? Um, obviously, there has to be that deep breath taken where your shoulders are relaxed again. But how do we avoid not playing nice in our own sandbox where it's most important? Yeah. Well, we make sure that we're we're playing together. We're having fun together on a regular basis because along with, with common courtesies, another area that gets neglected is, is having fun. You know, when couples first meet, they're attracted to each other and they, they talk with each other and they do things together. And, and then they say, oh, let's do this forever. And, and, and they, they continue to have fun for a while. But then after a time, life gets busy. You know, life becomes all about raising the kids and paying the bills, or or is it paying the kids and raising the bills? One of the <laughs> one of those two. <laughs> little of both. But, but yeah, a little of both. But you know what I'm saying? Life gets busy and yeah. fun gets pushed to the wayside in too many families. You need to be determined about it. You need to be intentional. That's one of my favorite words. Yes. When we're talking about marriage, don't just put it on autopilot and expect it to be fine. I. I hate the expression, marriage takes work. Georgine, I work for a living. I work all day. I don't want to think I have to go home and work all night. But, but it takes paying attention, being focused, being intentional, choosing to have the marriage that you want. And playing is a huge part of that. Another is, is look for the good. You have to force yourself now and then to look for the good qualities in your mate because they're there. So are the negatives. Those are easy to see. But the L chapter in the play model is, is look for the good. Make sure you're, you're observing positive behavior and you're letting your mate or your children know, hey, I appreciate that. Thank you. That means a lot. You know, you do that, you're going to see more of it. You're going to see more of it. 
We're talking with oh. uh, Ron Price, and we're talking about his uh, book, Play Nice in Your Sandbox at Home, How to Enjoy Peaceful Relationships with the Important People in Your Life. I need to take a quick break, but we're going to continue that conversation. And let me encourage you, this is a book that just might help you uh, through this season and in the seasons ahead when life returns to what we hope will be somewhat normal. <laughs> You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Ron Price. He is the author of Play Nice in Your Sandbox at Home. I think I need to repeat that because for some of us, we need to be reminded, you know, this is my sandbox at home. Play nice. We were talking just before the break about how to go about that. And one of the things I think when we have been offended, when things haven't gone well, we have heard the phrase, just forgive and forget. You say that that's unrealistic. What do we do when we have been offended, when things are going rough uh, with that baggage that we tend to carry with us? What's the right approach if forgive and forget isn't? Well, I love the forgive part, Georgine. Yeah. Don't get me wrong on that. Forgive is wonderful. It's the forgetting part that I have an issue with. I often challenge people, think back to your second grade, first or second grade teacher and raise your hand when you have the, the name or the picture that you have the face of your first or second grade teacher. And Georgine, most hands go up within just a few seconds. Yes. And then I ask, all right, when was the last time you thought about your first or second grade teacher? And they go, oh, it's been, it's been years. But look how quick you were able to recall. God created our minds, Georgine, in such a way that we remember everything. But, but to say forgive and forget, short of brain damage, and, and I'm not making a joke there. Some people know if you've had a traumatic brain injury, yeah, your memory could be, could be unreliable and you might be able to forget things. But other than that, you, you just can't do it. So let's replace it with forgive and move on. Mm. forgive and move on or or here's a quick story let me share about a lady who had been offended by a fellow church member and and she was visiting with another friend about it and and she said you know i decided to forgive her and the friend said forgive her don't you remember what she did to you and the lady said no i specifically remember forgetting that (laughs) isn't that great i specifically remember forgetting that so don't, don't try to forgive and forget. You can't do it. Forgive and move on because the enemy will bring thoughts to your mind. You know that. He'll, oh, absolutely. He'll keep throwing it into the forefront of your mind, and you can say, you know what, uh-uh, forgive and move on. Okay, well, forgive I've got a better on. suggestion. Go. Let's do this. Okay. I'm just going to change my mate. I'm just going to set about oh. changing, <laughs> changing my mate. How successful am I likely to be with that? <laughs> uh, forgive me. I'm not supposed to laugh at the host, am I? Uh, <laughs> But boy, how common is that, Georgine? How common is that? I saw I saw something on the Today Show years ago. In fact, I write about this in the book. Uh, I, I was I was at work. I just finished breakfast. I was getting ready to settle down and start doing some work, and happened to have the Today Show on. And they said, "Oh, in our next segment, uh, we're going to have an animal trainer who's going to share with us how she used animal training techniques to change her husband." And I said, <laughs> "Oh, oh, this is going to be good." Yeah. So. So I hung around for a few moments and the lady comes on. I can't remember her name, but she comes on and she says, you know, when you're training animals, you look for the behavior that you want. You, you look for them to do the right thing and you lavish praise on them. You reward them. You let them know how much you appreciate that behavior. 
She said, I started doing that with my husband. When he did things that I liked, oh, I just went out of my, oh, thank you. Oh, you're wonderful. Oh, I appreciate that. And she said, and you know what? He began to change. But Georgine, then she looked right in the camera and said, oh, was it me? Yeah, who had exactly. changed exactly. oh and i started to do a dance i'm in my office dancing she got it don't don't yeah. oh the gandhi said be the change you want to see in the world how about be the change you want to see in your marriage how's that sound yeah i like it i like it you have in the book the acronym halt and each letter stands for something that might contribute to the way we respond to our loved ones uh talk about the acronym halt and how that can help us in perhaps avoiding problems. Yeah, and, and I certainly didn't make this up, but it's hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Again, Georgine, I, I don't know you. We're just meeting by phone right now. And uh, it, it's great to be with you, by the way, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I know that there are moments when you're not at your best. And that makes two of us in this conversation, in case you're wondering. Yeah. And and if I'm hungry, if I'm upset, if uh, I'm agitated about something else, you know, whatever, there can be all sorts of reasons that, again, I'm just not going to be at my best. And and if I have to interact with my wife or children or others at that time, it, it's risky. It's dangerous. So that's why I advocate people call a timeout when you know you're not at your best. Call a timeout. But, Georgine, you have to call a timeout the right way. If you do it the wrong way. You're probably going to make it worse, not better. Can I, can I take a moment right or two way? and share the right way? Thank Absolutely. you. I was hoping you'd ask. <laughs> you, you know, if, if you and I are having a, a heated discussion and I just say to you, that's it, time off, and I storm off, I'm not being fair to you because I'm leaving you to wonder, well, wait a minute, is, is he coming back? Are we ever going to discuss this? Uh, again, I should have picked a different example because you and I are not married, but let's say your husband did that. He just said, he stormed off. You're left to wonder, well, is he rejecting me? Is he rejecting the relationship? You don't know. So if you love him, which I know you do, you, you could go after him and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's talk. It's going to make him even more frustrated. So he's going to walk all the, all the faster and further. All he has to do is say, you know what? Hold on, time out. I'm too upset to talk right now, but I will be back in an hour and we'll talk then. Or how about if we get together at two o'clock and we talk then? Or how about seven o'clock? So they call a timeout, but they establish the time in. You let the other person know it, we will talk about this, just not right now. Mm -hmm. you, you can say one of two things to another adult, Georgine. You can say, I need a timeout or we need a timeout. I suggest you never say to another adult, you need a timeout. I think, I think you'll find out how much they really do. Um, yeah, whether or not they do, but, this is not a good way to, <laughs> they, to go about they, they will then, yeah. But, <laughs> so if you call the timeout, you are responsible to schedule the time in. That way it's timeout, not cop-out. If it's an important issue to somebody who's important to you, you have the right to say, I won't talk to you about this right now. You do not have the right to say, I don't ever want to talk to you about this. That's not how relationships are supposed to function. Yeah, that's, that's so good. You write about, um, in fact, I'm going to quote you, if you are in a relationship where escalation occurs frequently and regularly, your relationship is in serious trouble. First of all, describe escalation. And I think during this season, we're seeing numbers where that's the case. 
Uh, describe no. what that means and and what should be done in that sort of situation. Yeah, that's a great question, Georgine, especially to follow up what we were just talking about. But yeah. Thank you. Escalation is where little things become big things. I didn't like it when you did that. Oh, yeah. What about you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then before you know it, I, I don't know what it is we're talking about, but it probably has nothing whatsoever to do with whatever started the conversation in the first place. Now, Georgine, how long have you and your husband, Don, been married? 38 years. All right. Then you have escalated in your time. We got you. We got you by one year. My wife and I are going to hit 40 in December. So we're oh, 39 congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And right back at you. But any couple who's been married any length of time has escalated at some point in their relationship. Yes. It's human. It's going to happen. And as long as it's now and then, ah, come on. Again, it just married, means you married a human being and so did they. But again, if you're in a relationship where every little thing blossoms, gets out of hand, it's going to steal your joy, it's going to steal your energy, and it's going to sicken your relationship. The late Gary Smalley called, uh, called what I write about the five germs. I got them from an organization in Denver, Prep Inc. Dr. Smalley called them germs that will infect and kill off a relationship, any relationship, certainly a marriage. And escalation is one of them. So again, you can probably guess calling a timeout. If you see you're starting to escalate, call a timeout. Or another technique, I didn't write about this in the book, but I've, I've been espousing it recently. Be disruptive. Okay, you're going to have to define that now, one. Yeah, I know, because Georgina, I got I used to get into a lot of trouble as a child for being disruptive <laughs> and and now and now I advocate it. But let's say let's say you and your husband again, I'll I'll use you as an example if you don't mind. Please. You're having you're having again an argument, a, a discussion that is not pleasant. It's not going in the right direction. All you have to do is say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, time out. I, I all of a sudden need some fresh air. How about if we go for a walk? And let's talk about this on the way. You're disrupting the negative interaction. You're disrupting the pattern. And then once you get outside, you can do what I wrote about the speaker-listener technique. You can say, hey, we need to understand each other. You go first. Talk to me civilly, please. Make it easy for me to understand you. But I'm going to listen to you, and then hopefully you'll return the favor. Or you're having an argument with a teenage teenage child and you say, uh, you know what, hold on, hold on. I all of a sudden have a hankering for an ice cream cone. How about if we drive down and get us an ice cream cone? Again, you're disrupting, breaking the negative cycle. You get in the car and say, hey, all right, we got to understand each other. You go first. Talk to me. Mm, so it's great. kind of a conversation do-over, if you will. But yeah, what happens is we just let the negative interactions run their course, and their course is usually in a, in a in a bad direction. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's so much more in plain ice in your sandbox at home that time does not permit us to talk about. But I want our listeners to know that you offer chapter challenges, you offer calls to action, a framework for marriage uh, that are under stress and de-stress, uh, and you offer great advice and encouragement on how to keep your, your love alive even in times of uncertainty and how to have fun in the midst of it all. Once again, the book is titled Play Nice in Your Sandbox at Home, How to Enjoy Peaceful Relationships with the Important People in Your Life. Book available online. How can I our listeners uh, get a copy. They need it today. It is online. It's at Amazon for sure. But Georgine, I got one other thing item I'd like to offer your listeners. I've sure. recently put together 
how to protect your relationship from five common but destructive behaviors. And uh, it's a simple PDF, but I'd like to make that available. If anybody sends me an email, ron at playniceinyoursandbox.com. Ron at playniceinyoursandbox.com. I'll shoot that off to you. But again, there's, there, are, there are behaviors that we do in marriage that if we, if we realized it and recognized them, had a name to give to them, yeah. we'd be in a much better position to stop them, turn them around, and, and, and make things better. Marriage will joy. always be challenging, but it doesn't have to be as hard as we sometimes make it. Yeah, Ron Price, thank you so much. I look forward to our next conversation. I'm sure we'll have one. I hope so, Georgine. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, Ron Bye-bye. Price, play nice in your sandbox at home. And, and uh, you can take advantage of that PDF that he offered, playniceinyoursandbox.org. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. If you're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show, it's been quite an exciting day here. We had a power outage at my end, which meant we had to postpone recording the program. I said Neil Goldschmidt was uh, one of the first individuals to walk on the moon earlier in the program today. It's been quite a, an occasion. Uh, anyway, tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with John Lott. His book is titled Gun Control Myths. He is um, quite the, the go-to specialist on the subject, and we're going to delve into what he considers to be myths about gun control as opposed to what we hear most often in the mainstream media on the subject. So he'll join us in on the program here tomorrow. Well, in a survey, the Pew Research Center found that 72% of Americans said God plays an important role in their life. Now, I almost want to chuckle at that because um, God plays an important role in everyone's life in that he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. So to say that 72% of Americans say that God plays an important role is sort of comical because the question isn't asked in a way that would garner a response any less than 100%. But nonetheless, we understand what they're getting at. Uh, This new survey, Pew, 72% of Americans say God plays an important role in their life. Um, 67% say they pray. uh, That also plays an important role in their life. Worldwide, the poll shows that 61% of people say God plays an important role in their life. Perception is such an important part in all of this. Prayer was slightly less important globally, with 53% of people agreeing that prayer plays an important role in their life. You know, it's interesting because prayer is important in the life of a believer, um, but prayer can be understood by people as being different things. Is it the simple act of prayer, the physical act of prayer where you're relaxed, and is that what they're referring to, or are they referring to uh, the object of one's prayer, the the subject to which one prays, it's not altogether clear. So when you talk about the subject of prayer, it can be easily misunderstood, depending on what people mean by it. But prayer was slightly less important globally, with 53% of people agreeing that prayer plays an important role in their life. Um, the survey also showed that religion is very or somewhat important to 62% of people. 34% said not at all or not too important. When asked whether belief in God is necessary to be moral and have good values, 54% of Americans said it was not. 44% said that it is. The median percentage for the world was 44%. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have some regard for Scripture, you know that the Scripture says all have sinned. We have the capacity on occasion to actually engage in moral conduct, 
but we have fallen short of what the scripture describes as the glory of God. We are so far beneath what his standard of holiness is that none of us measures up. So it's a really a very different sort of question. Can you engage in moral uh, activity? Yeah, you can. You can be an unbeliever and engage in things that would be fall in the category of being moral. Uh, but it wouldn't be sufficient to engage in the relationship required, uh, the redemptive relationship required in Scripture. Anyway, Western European countries prove to be some of the most secular Is that where we're headed, one wonders? For the eight Western European countries surveyed, a median 22% of people said that that belief in God is necessary to be more, have good values. Sweden at 9% was one of the lowest, along with France at 15%, the UK at 20%, to say that God was necessary for good values. Whether or not we trace our good values, in quotes, back to a Judeo-Christian worldview, He is the source of all things good. So, again, our perception, whether or not we acknowledge what's true, is another question. But these surveys are always instructive and certainly insightful. Indonesia and the Philippines represented the highest belief in the necessity of God for good value, both at 96%. Um, African countries think similarly, with uh, Kenya at 95, Nigeria at 93, South Africa at 84, Tunisia at 84, all saying the same. The poll also highlighted, highlighted rather, changes in belief from 2002 present, or really 2019. In 2002, 33% of Bulgarians said belief in God is necessary to have good values. Now 50% say they, that it does. So that's up. Russia also increased from 20% to 37%. Japan increased from 29 to 39%. Well, five countries, they were Mexico, Turkey, Ukraine, South Korea, and the United States all experienced a decrease and the belief that God is necessary for good values. United States, which moved from 58% to, in 2002 to 44% in 2019, was the biggest change. This is the direction, if this survey is uh, to be reflective of what's going on broadly across the country, it's discouraging. Well, the survey also showed a connection between affluence and belief. No big surprise there. It's more difficult for a rich man to make it into the kingdom than to... Go through the eye of a needle. For almost all cases, it's not impossible, and I won't go into the explanation of all of that, but um, wealth is certainly an affluence, is certainly a challenge. In fact, when I've met with segments of the persecuted church, their greatest fear wasn't that they would be decimated by persecution, but that affluence and wealth would, which is redundant, uh, would somehow undermine their resolve to follow Christ with their whole heart, that it would somehow undermine their desire to share the gospel with others. So it gives you some understanding of what they know to be true from Scripture. Anyway, for almost all cases, a lower national GDP represented a higher belief that God was necessary for good values. Kenya, which had the lowest GDP per capita, about $4,509, held a 95% belief in this statement, while Sweden, which was uh, has a high GDP, Uh, per capita, had only 9% of its population connecting belief in God to good values. Again, it's just a snapshot, a brief glimpse of a portion of the world's population and whether or not there is an understanding of the necessity of God, not only to um, give us an understanding of good versus evil, but to give us the capacity to behave well, to behave good versus evil, uh, if you will. 
again, I would encourage you to go to the scriptures. In fact, we're going to be talking later this week with a representative, I believe is from the Bible Society, and we're going to talk about uh, whether or not people are looking to scripture to inform them during this season. Has COVID-19 had an impact? One would assume that when we're in a difficult and challenging time, as was the case initially, people would run to the scriptures to try to seek understanding. Has that been sustained over this period of time? We'll talk about that. I believe that's on Thursday. And James can uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I want to thank James Blend for uh, producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for use of his office. And thank you for uh, making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Once again, John Lott, his latest book, Gun Control Myths, will be my guest tomorrow. I hope you will join us and have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.